And remember that we are not descended from fearful men. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Five, four, three. The Kellen and Alex Show. Zero. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. The Callan and Alex Show. Adita, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Alex. We are talking feminism, women in the church, all sorts of different things. Adita, should women have the right to vote? No. No? <laughs> no, <laughs> I your first Callan and Alex Show. Joking, of course. Um, I'm a female. I am planning on voting in this election. I encourage all women to vote in this election. So my answer is yes, <laughs> women should vote. <laughs> and the women vote is... A very big deal for both parties, right? Yes, definitely. There's been a lot of talk about like women who are college educated being overwhelmingly voting like Democrat and that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, they always throw that college educated thing. It's like, well, college educated people go Democrat, you know. But I there was a, a recent podcast with Trent Horn and I don't know if you saw this, uh, Trent Horn and Timothy Gordon, and they were arguing over like women's role in the workplace, women's role in voting and stuff. Timothy Gordon was flat out, women should not be in politics, should not vote, shouldn't have female politicians. And uh, Trent Horn was defending it. Um, Yeah, it's weird. In the Catholic world, like this is still a very debated thing, you know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I know a lot of people have different opinions on it. And, you know, obviously, I'm not some ultimate authority on this. But, um, you know, I really think it comes down to being able to balance priorities in your life. You know, so when it comes to women in the workplace, you know, I think there have been a lot of women who have done a lot of good, you know, in politics and in the workplace. Um, But at the end of the day, you know, your spiritual life has to come first and your family life has to come first. Um, And so I think it's all about balance. I think if you're a woman who can balance family life and your career, then, you know, that's great. And some women have been able to successfully do that. Um, I know that a lot of women just, they choose to be stay at home moms. They choose to homeschool because they just say, you know, I feel like I could do more good here than I could do in the workplace. Mm. And I feel like a lot of people make different decisions and it works out for different families. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you can never let something like a job, um, interfere with your home life to the point where, you know, you're not spending time with your kids. You're not spending time with your husband. Right. Yeah. Like that balance and stuff. And it's it's interesting with, uh, you know, talking about women in like the corporate culture. I mean, you could already criticize corporate culture for men or for women with how many hours they demand of people, overtime work and all that type of stuff. And then, you know, women having children and having to raise families and stuff that that makes it even more difficult to dedicate all that type of time. Um, but then there's some people who say we should make society such that women don't have to go to the workforce or don't have to enter that. That's at least seems like some Catholic speakers like Timothy Gordon and others, right? Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I think what you were saying about like the long corporate hours, you know, I do think that it is true that at a certain point we have to recognize that if we want to spend time at home, there are certain jobs we just can't do. Um, And I know, you know, a lot of people aren't happy hearing that. But I think, you know, if you've chosen to have a family and take on that responsibility, there are probably some jobs that you just can't do um, given the hours. But yeah, I mean... It's an interesting idea, you know, saying like, um, you know, we should just have a society in which women um, shouldn't have to work. I feel that, you know, I guess, I mean, 
I don't think all women work out of necessity, which is an interesting thing to talk about, you know, because, you know, a lot of women say, well, I have to work in order to support my family. But it's interesting to think about women who just really enjoy their careers, you know. So I think that that's slightly different and that's more interesting to talk about. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with a woman pursuing a career that she loves. Um, But once again, it can never be at at the expense of the family. Hmm. Oh, that's yeah. Not just out of like, well, we need two incomes. It's like, no, I actually enjoy what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Like. I mean, there's tons of uh, like nurses, mostly females, um, therapy, psychology, counseling, mostly females, uh, education, like, and those people presumably really enjoy what they're doing, enjoy their careers. And then, yeah, it just, those kind of like blanket statements of like, you know, females should, women should stay out of the workplace at home or whatever. It, It doesn't seem to just be a compelling Catholic argument of society. It just seems to be like a blanket statement, not really much of an argument. I don't know. Yeah. And I think that, you know, if you think about women who work, you know, you you can think of some great writers who are female. So even just like if we're talking about Catholicism in particular, a lot of great Catholic speakers who are women and they do a job that's very that only a woman can do. You know, only a woman can speak to other women on women's issues, you know. And so, you know, I, I would never go as far as to say that, like, oh, they shouldn't be working because they're doing a lot of good. But, you know, yeah, it's about... <laughs> yeah, no, again. totally. I'm right there with you on that. Yeah, it's weird. It's They seem to be identifying, like, kind of all the cultural, let's say, like all, all the degradation of women's status in terms of uh, how much we value motherhood, how much we vo- value, you know, really making a home uh, a beautiful place, devaluing, like, oh, if you're a stay-at-home mom, like, oh, that's... For the society, it's like, oh, that's so weird and stuff. Like, both parents should be working. And uh, so these Catholic commentators seem to be going against that. But then they just say, like, you know, women should be out of politics, should not be in the workplace at all. And they seem to, I don't know, they seem to go too far. I don't know if you're seeing this with some, like, traditional Catholic thinkers or whatever else. But Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point that you brought up in that, you know, not seeing the value of homemaking anymore. I think a lot of women today, they feel that if they don't go to work, that makes them less and have less value for some reason. You know, they think, oh, my husband's making money. If I'm not out there doing something productive, making money, you know, I'm not a fully grown adult. I'm not contributing to society. And it's really sad that, you know, women feel that way because, you know, once again, it's different if you have a passion about a career and that's something different. But, you know, if you have the resources to be a stay at home mom, if you would like to be a stay at home mom, but then you feel like, oh, but what will my family and friends say about me? You know, all my friends have jobs like I feel like I have to go to work. Um, You know, we can't devalue the work that you do around the house so much to that extent. You know, raising a family, there's literally nothing more important that you can do. Mm, Yeah. And like the, when we devalue the, let's say stay at home mom or the homemaker too, like it's hard for, you know, maybe the workplace for these women who have careers is also like their social, you know, like how they make their friends and how they have community and stuff is their, you know, their career and their workplace. And they find meaning in that. And they're obviously maybe they're raising a family as well, but like you take that away as a society, you take away the, let's say, promoting just women being mothers and stuff. And it's hard for them to find community sometimes and find other relationships. And then like you're saying, like, then they feel like, well, what am I doing? I'm just, you know, at, at home and I'm raising the kids and stuff, but that other, you know, she's out having a career and I kind of wanted to do that. Um, yeah, it's a weird situation we're in a modern age, right? Yeah. I just think, yeah, you really need to 
you know, when you're a parent and, you know, you want above all else the good for your children, you know, and you just, your goal is to get your children to heaven. And that really cannot be emphasized enough. And yeah, I really, I hear that so much from, you know, girls, both girls my age, I'm a college student, and both, you know, people more my mother's age. I hear it from all directions, people saying like, oh, I won't, I don't want to be a housewife because everyone else is working or, oh, I maybe even I regret being a housewife because, you know, I had these career ambitions, but, you know, I like to think about it. You know, what I like to say to those people is, you know, like, look at all your children, look at how happy they are, you know, look at your happy family. How can you look at that with regret? You know? Mm, Right. So we had a debate, let me see, about two years ago on traditional marriage roles. And it was this house believes traditional marriage roles are ideal. So, and then I think they defined it as like the man works, the wife raises the kids, mostly, you know, not with a career attached, like a full, full time. Uh, and the house voted yes for that. They, I think it was like, it was fairly close. It's like 60, 40 or something like that. But I don't know. Would you say traditional marriage roles? Like if you're getting married, should you try and make that your situation as a Catholic? Yeah. So I think so. Um, I think that that's biblical. <laughs> and um, I know that seems like so radical today, um, you know, to say something like that. Um, but, you know, I think that you can't, you know, maybe you should just read the verse in the Bible that talks about traditional marriages. I think that'd Please. be helpful. Yeah. We're so, bringing some Bible in. Oh, yes. So this so, is First Corinthians? Ephesians. Oh, Ephesians. Got it. Got it. 521. Um, it says of married couples, be subject to one another out of reference, reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. As the church is subject to Christ, so let wives also be subject in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up to her. And so, Yeah. Whoa, St. Paul. (laughs) Very controversial today. That's not very feminist of you. What the heck? Yeah, so (laughs) I think that... So be subject to your husbands in everything. Yeah, pretty radical statement, That sounds like some male chauvinism right there, Adita. That sounds like some straight up non-equal stuff. I think that... Okay, how do we interpret that, right? Yeah, so once again, I'm no authority on this subject, but something that I think is really that you really need to consider is, um, that, you know, I'm assuming if you're reading the Bible and you're taking this and you want to go by this, that means you're, you know, practicing Catholic Christian and you should be pursuing virtue and pursuing holiness. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there's this idea that like, oh, if I, you know, defer to my husband's judgment in this area, then like, oh, that's kind of risky. You know, like, I feel like I'm like a smart, independent woman. Like I can make my own decisions and whatnot. Right. But, you know, I think that virtue plays a big role in this. Um, I think humility does having the humility to realize maybe I don't have the answers all the time. You know, maybe I need my husband (laughs) and also just realizing that if you married a virtuous man, then him leading your household will only lead you closer to Christ and into virtue. You know, any man who is controlling or tyrannical is not a Christ-like man and is not the man that's being described in this passage that I just read. You know, if he is, if you're both virtuous, then, and if you're both actively seeking to become more virtuous, then I think that this kind of arrangement 
works out very well. <laughs> I'm just laughing at like all the awkward homilies that must have been preached on this uh, on this passage because it gets read like once a year uh, in the church. And, um, you know, wives be subject to your husbands in all things as, as uh, the church is subject to Christ. And you're like, all right, how do I interpret this for a modern <laughs> reader and modern modern group? Uh, yeah, that humility part of it. I mean, for, well, let's take it like our American age is pagan. You know what I mean? At this, at this point in time, we're like clinging on to some Christian virtues. Like we have this idea of like equality and all this stuff is like remnants of Christian virtue of the past. But like when you say be subject, um, and then your, your husband is not a Christian, doesn't really have morality or whatever else. It's like, no, I don't want to, cause I don't want him to be tyrannical over me. Like the assumption is if you read this without the idea of grace, it's like, it's completely absurd, right? Yeah, no, of course. I think it's entirely dependent, you know, on that one line where it says the husband must be like Christ, you know, laying down his life on the cross and for if the he's church. Not, it's gonna yeah. be a bad time. <laughs> and so I totally see why women today would rebel against this passage because if you're not trying to mirror that relationship of Christ and the church, then yeah, this this really doesn't make any sense. Cause Christ you know, that whole Christ in the church, that's what gives the meaning to all of this. You know, marriage is a sign of Christ's love for the church. Um, and if you take away that sign, it just becomes so hard to understand. Christ really illuminates what it means for us to be in this kind of relationship. The craziest, like, let's say description of men and women I've ever read is from Nietzsche. And it's really bad. And a lot of it, I can't even like, I don't even want to say on the podcast, but um, he said once, uh, and this is what I would describe as his reading of like the ancients, like the pagan practice of wives and whatever else. And he said, um, for men, woman is a most, uh, dangerous plaything, a distraction from war and his most, uh, what did he say? Most coveted property. And that was his reading of how the pagans treated women and possibly how he thought it was in nature as well. And Anyways, if you're taking that understanding, right, of the relationship of man and woman, then this couldn't be, I don't think there's any more antithetical relationship than like the Christ and the church relationship. Um, and it seems like the more we get away from Christian virtue, the more we're like living out Nietzsche's state of nature thing. I don't know. This is just my thoughts on it, but I, yeah, it's, it's weird. <laughs> yeah, I know. I definitely think that our culture, as it's moved away from these Christian values, we've, we've moved more towards a culture of use. And if you're coming from that standpoint, you know, from like a very transactional standpoint or where you're coming from, you know, the idea of I get married because um, for money reasons, for pleasure reasons, um, and I will leave this marriage once I stop getting what I wanted to get out of it, you know, then this does become very scary advice, you yeah. know, because this isn't what you signed up for. You signed up to take in your marriage and not to give. Mm. Um, but I think St. Paul makes it very clear that um, it's in giving that you will have a happy marriage and that you will grow in love when you're constantly giving of yourselves. Reciprocal self-gift. I'm in a <laughs> TOV class right now, so I had to throw that in there. Dr. Waldstein. Have you taken uh, Theology of the Body? Or yep. Who'd you take it with? Dr. McNamara. Oh, sweet. Mac Daddy. Love that guy. <laughs> Shout out to Mac Daddy out there with the the purple pants. Love that guy. <laughs> He's great. Yeah, T O B. Reciprocal self gift, right? In that like 
So we're, we're talking theology of the body. This is John Paul the Great, or John Paul II, St. John Paul II. But his idea was, yeah, that before the fall, there was like this relationship of um, mutual self-gift, right? You give of yourself completely to the other and reciprocate that. Uh, it's really intense, like TOB, theology of the body. Um, but you can't, and then he said after the fall, that relationship's co- completely broken, right? And then it's a... Uh, whoever can take more or dominate or whatever. But yeah, and it's funny, like our culture today is like, oh, we're so pro-women and all that stuff. But like, no, definitely not. (laughs) We're in a divorce and remarriage, the hookup culture, like all these things are detrimental more to women than men most of the time. Yeah. And I think, you know, women value these things because to them, it's a sign of their freedom. You know, if I can sleep around, if I can divorce, if I can do this, this or that, well, I can do whatever I want. I'm free. I'm empowered. And that's where it's coming from. When, um, you know, that's such a misunderstanding of freedom. And, you know, I think it's so, you know, what a greater act of freedom than to say, like, I choose to just bind myself to this person for the rest of my life. Like what an ultimate exercise of your freedom to commit yourself in that way. You know, I will, you know, I will spend the rest of my life giving myself in this self-gift to you and I'm not going to change my mind and I'm not going to leave you. And this is going to be, this is going to involve my entire person. And it's so holistic. And that is just, to me, that's an ultimate exercise of your freedom, you know, because you're, you're laying it down for another, you know, you're not going to change your mind. You're yeah. Maybe sometimes you'll have to sacrifice. Sometimes you'll have to obey out of humility. Sometimes these little choices here and there aren't going to be up to you anymore, but that's because you've made such a great act of love. Hmm. How do you convince young women (laughs) like that, that relationship is, uh, that self-love is like, is possible and convince them that, yeah, like this, even this idea that you would seek in a relationship, this, um, like be willing to be submissive to your husband or like how to look for like a husband that's appropriate, whatever. Yeah. How any practical. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think, you know, try to talk to them about what do you want out of a marriage? What do you want out of a guy? Um, because, if you come in with this attitude of, you know, you're, you're just taking and if you come in open to say like divorce, for example, I think, I just think that's a good example. Um, if you're kind of entering a relationship or a marriage saying, oh, well, once it gets difficult, once I change my mind, I'm going to leave. Well, you know, in your mind, that always sounds nice because it's like, oh, I have the freedom to do that. But would you want the man that you're with to say that to you? Like I take you for now until I change my mind <laughs> or I take you conditionally. But if you, you know, if you have an accidental pregnancy, then not anymore. Yeah. You know, all women have this deep desire to be loved unconditionally. And once again, they don't often recognize it because I think they think it conflicts with this idea of freedom. But, you know, you just think about that desire to be loved unconditionally. And then remember that, you know, if that's what you desire, that's what you have to give as well. Hmm. And you have like prenuptial agreements and all this yeah. stuff and like, like people writing their own vows and all this type of stuff. You know, the funniest I saw. So they're in, in, I don't know if you've been to Paris before. Yeah. Do you know the Lovelock bridge or yes. have you seen that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The funniest thing. So I had a, yeah, my tour guide is like, yeah, you'll notice all these locks. Like, you know, they lock it and then they throw the key in the river, but you'll notice a number of combination locks. 
<laughs> he's like, I don't have much hope for that that relationship, you know? Oh, someone knows the combination, you know what I mean? As long as I can get that out. But I mean, that's what we're making with, with our marriage. Like the idea that you can divorce and remarry. It's like, it's your, it's your combination lock. If you, you know, you got to go through some legal stuff. You got to get some lawyers. You got to figure out who gets what kid. But there's a possibility of getting out of it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's our whole culture, divorce and remarriage. Yeah, definitely. It's very sad. And yeah. And like less people are marrying too. I mean, or, okay, so let's take uh, Elon Musk, for example. He married when he was, I don't know, in his 20s or something, had like four kids with his wife. She wrote, she actually wrote this opinion article, uh, New York Times. And it was just, she realized that over her, while Elon was getting fabulously wealthy off of PayPal, he was early into PayPal and then PayPal shot through the roof made millions of dollars. And that's when he founded Tesla and all that stuff. Uh, he started getting in the elite circles in Hollywood and California and all that stuff. And um, she started going to the parties with them and all that stuff. She dyed her hair blonde. Uh, she wasn't naturally blonde, started like eating a ton less, started kind of becoming anorexic. And she had a cr- she was driving in like a Porsche and had a crash with another lady. And she got out of the car and was wearing like high heels and like a slim dress and all that stuff. And realized she'd just become another like Cali wife, basically, for this uber wealthy guy. And Elon was not being, you know, not present and not really paying her much attention and all that stuff. And she divorced him and left and said, I didn't feel loved. I didn't feel like I felt like Elon wanted me me to be a certain way. And now he's married to some like 29 year old singer or something like that. Like, but he's the, you know, image of success for a Mm -hmm. guy, for a man, right? He's made it past everything and, you know, wife got left behind, but that's, that's whatever. I don't, it, yeah, it cuts, it, it's probably, it's way more on the man. I think the men have definitely um, screwed up the society way more than the, oh, women are trying to be so empowered and all this stuff and it's causing problems. It's like, no, the guys are basically jerks and they've led into the situation. Yeah. Well, I think that what I was saying earlier when I was talking about like women who want to work, just making sure that your family comes first, the same applies to men. Um, and you know, if you probably more to men, women are more naturally like, I'll pay attention to the family. The guy's like, whatever, I got to work more hours, you know, not paying attention to kids. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, today there's still so much of a debate around like, what should the role of the woman be in the workplace and in the home? And then we kind of forget to call out these men who are no longer present in their homes. And it's, yeah, like they chase success, they chase um, promotions at work, money, and and while obviously you need to provide for your family, and obviously you know they have a bit more of a responsibility for that than women, and so it's important that they take that seriously. Um, it's also important that we remember that family comes first for men as well. <laughs> right. Like, how many fatherless homes do we have? And like, that's got it. That messes with. Probably even, yeah, I mean, single parent homes, single mom homes. Um, yeah, and especially like in minority communities and stuff. And that just, like the statistics on that of it perpetuating crime, perpetuating all sorts of stuff. Um, yeah, and we've created this scenario. I, I remember reading in Dostoevsky, one of his, um, one of the characters said, feminism was a lie created by men to the detriment of women. Um, <laughs> and it was just like, yeah, in a way, if you're a guy who wants to, you know, who doesn't have any morals, doesn't really care about family or marriage or whatever, and you want, you know, you're going to end up taking advantage of women. Having women try and pursue careers against you and not really pay attention to their family and home leaves them open to being exploited by men. 
I think a lot of times. Yeah, I would agree with that. And it turns it into this this competition almost, you know, in which like, oh, who's the primary breadwinner? Or at least am I making as much money as my husband? Am I putting in as many hours as him? Because, you know, because then I'll be worthy, then I'll be valuable. Turns it onto almost this weird competition instead of a partnership, as if women can only be valued if they somehow outdo men. If they're economically viable, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's sad that, you know, a woman in a marriage in a household, yeah, like you said, you know, feels her that her value in that household is dependent on how much money she's bringing in. That's crazy. It's like our whole our whole system's like how much money can you produce, you know? How how valuable are you to the market, you know? Yeah. And yeah, and it really only like you were talking about with the single parent households, you know, it really just creates this cycle because, you know, the family is always referred to as a domestic church. You know, kids learn, they learn to love from their family, like the environment that they're raised in, like that's, those are the values that they grew up with. And then when they get married themselves, you know, how their parents modeled love for them, that's, how they are kind of ingrained to, that's what they think love is. And, you know, and obviously there are some other influences, you know, hopefully if your parents aren't great influences, then you can go to church and you can like read the Bible and know more about that. But in many ways, your parents teach you what it is to love and people coming from broken households, you know, that's almost their expectation going into their own marriages. Oh, oh yeah. That's, that's really keen. Yeah. I know that's, they see their parents got divorced and they're thinking, okay, I'm about to get married. Like, are we actually going to stay together this whole time? I mean, that's got to be eating at you like your whole relationship. Yeah. And it, there's some like biblical, like evils carried down to the fourth generation or something like that, but good is carried down to the 16th. So hopefully the good's going to win out, you know, in this, this scenario. But yeah, I'm also thinking, so let's say you're, um, you're the husband, you got a new family and you're thinking, where do I go? Right. And you say, okay, my career is taking me to wherever, Chicago or something. And you go there and the woman's being the housemaker, whatever. And I can imagine just tons of scenarios where she just does not have community or friends and like how difficult that has to be because like the guy can go off and have friends at work and his relationship and stuff like, yeah. How do you build a community with? Yeah. So I can't say I've had personal experience with this yeah. as being a college student <laughs> and not being in that position. But I think that part of that is understanding that being a housewife does not just mean you sit at home all day and do nothing. Right. You know, it doesn't just mean like you sit on the couch with a magazine in your lap and you like check on your kid from time to time and then you're just wasting away, <laughs> which I think is the image that a lot of people have today, unfortunately. Yeah. But um, a lot of housewives I know, they're very involved in the church. Um, they teach CCD. They go to daily mass. They um, they might volunteer at certain places and they have community with other housewives. Um, they might meet up, do these things together, go on walks together, do like a communal daycare type thing. You mean there's um, things outside of work? Are you serious? I know. <laughs> Crazy. What? <laughs> there are other ways to be happy. <laughs> That's insane. Heard here first. Kellen Alex show. <laughs> But yeah, and um, I mean, 
And when your kids become old enough, there are a lot of women who form like homeschool groups too. That's a great source of community because you and the other moms, you're like actively working and collaborating on a project and then like your kids become friends. And um, yeah, being a housewife does not mean rotting away on your couch. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? That's like now the, that's like the idea now, you know what I mean? Yeah. And people think like, like uh, you know, like 1950s, like post-war, uh, that image of like the housewife and there's like kids in the background and like flipping a pancake or something like that. Yeah. Like, Oh, well that's, that was the 1950s. You're so outdated. We're, you know, we're modern now. You can't really have a true community unless you're working or you're, you know, plugged in or yeah. And this idea of value going back to what you were saying earlier, it's like, that's huge. I think, cause if you don't feel like what you're doing is valuable, that'll, that'll eat at you. No, exactly. So if you have that attitude, if you're like, oh, well, I have too many kids. I have to stay at home, but I really don't want to. This just kind of stinks for me. I guess I have to do it. Well, of course you're going to be unhappy, you know? Um, and at that point, that's on you and <laughs> you just need an attitude change, you know, because children are so beautiful. And that is, that is honestly like the number one way to give back to the world as like a lay person. I mean, like raise kids who are going to do some good and be good people and participate in their community. And there's so much value in that. And if, and you love your kids, of course. Right. And so like, what can bring you more happiness than seeing those who you love more than anything be happy and just grow up to be yeah, just like healthy, happy people. And there, yeah, there's so much value in that. And women just need to see that they need to be proud of everything that they've done. You know, it's not wasting away and it's not being lazy. You haven't done less than your husband. In fact, the whole point of the husband going to work is that so is so you can do what you're doing with the kids. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he goes to work to make the money to have this house and to support you is to keep you alive so that you can do this valuable work, which is raising your children. Right. Let's take a particular Steubenville. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say you get married and then uh, the husband's like, you know what? We're going to stick in Steubenville, Ohio. We're not going back to California or Texas or New York or anywhere cool. We're, we're in Ohio now. And, uh, you know, there's druggies up the street and people rope, rope. <laughs> this happened the other day or somebody rolled by and weed smoke billowed out of their car and all this stuff. All right. Well, now you're in Steubenville. Um, like, how do you, uh, how do you, let's say, find the value and find the community or whatever housewife in Steubenville? Okay. Let's take it from the guy's perspective. How does he arrange it so that, um, you know, the, uh, his wife is happy being in a situation let's just say particularly like Steubenville. Yeah. I mean, I think it all goes back to the community. I think find a solid parish, um, befriend people in that parish. Um, if, if you're dedicated to a particular type of schooling, then that's a good way to meet other parents. And yeah, I mean, cause people often describe it as like the Catholic bubble here in Steubenville, you know, of um, you have all these Catholics and they live in their own kind of bubble and they're kind of separated from the rest of the world. Um, but I don't think the bubble is necessarily a bad thing, personally. Mm -hmm. You know, I think- It's it, like a greenhouse. It's, it's yeah. helping you grow, you know? <laughs> Steubenville greenhouse. Yeah, I mean, like you don't want it to get to a point where you're like so secluded from the outside world that you just don't know anybody else and you're kind of ignorant. But the idea of just having like a kind of closed in a way community where it's like, yeah, bad influences are not in this community and good influences are concentrated in this community. I think that's a great idea. I don't really think that we should talk poorly about some kind of bubble because I think that's great. I think that 
kids will grow up to be much happier and holier people. They're surrounded by people who are also on the path to virtue along with them. Hmm. Like finding a good parish is, yeah, that's going to be really huge. Definitely. And like a parish, okay, let's say for, uh, <laughs> I just had a thought back to Nick and I's podcast on NFP, <laughs> which is maybe a topic we could go into or not, but um, yeah, like family, if you're intending with your husband to have a big family, right? As many kids as God's wanting to to give to you, finding a parish that's supportive of that and has other big families, you know, sometimes that could be pretty tough. I mean, let's just say regular America, you know, like we found our parish in San Diego uh, that had lots of big families. The, the parish priest was, but we've gone to parishes and my dad would be like, yeah, we have, you know, 11 kids or whatever. It's like, whoa, you have 11 kids and all that stuff. Even the parish priest. Uh, yeah. How do you find good parishes? Maybe. <laughs> what do, what yeah. do you look for? I don't know. That's that's a tricky one. Um, you know, I personally, I grew up in Connecticut, which is not a very Catholic state. And definitely most of my local parishes didn't have great community. Um, it's something that I try to seek out for many years and still, unfortunately, haven't really found. Um, so I think that is a tricky one. I think that's pretty hard. Um, I know some people after they graduate, specifically when they're choosing where to apply for jobs or which job to ex- accept, then they research the Catholic community in the area. Um, and that might not obviously be an option for everyone. You know, if sometimes if you just get a job, you kind of have to take it. Mm. Um, so yeah, I see how that's tricky. I don't really have like a particular solution to it. I let's think- say you're between a rock and a hard place with, let's say you got a, a job that could significantly pay you higher in a probably <laughs> nicer area, but really tough to find any Catholic community or Catholic parish. And you say, okay, I'm either going to rough it or I'm going to take a significant pay, like less pay, less whatever, and live in a pretty dang solid Catholic community. But it's going to be tough on you and your wife to make the economics part of it happen. Yeah. I mean, it would really depend on the particulars, but you know, I do, like I said multiple times, think that, um, getting your family to heaven is a number one priority. And so if you think that being in this community will be the best for your spiritual health and for that of your children. Even if you are a bit less comfortable, then I would personally make that switch. Um, Now, I know it obviously depends on the person because there's a difference between being less comfortable and actually not being able to make ends meet. And you obviously have a responsibility to provide for your children. So that's different. But I think that we need to prioritize spiritual health over physical comfort. Let's take Ephesians, that same situation. And that's that's great. Uh, yeah, you have to focus on, you know, heavenly good, obviously. But say you and your husband are at odds about this, right? Okay. You really <laughs> want to go to New York City. Well, that's just nice. New York sucks. But let's say you, want, you really want to go to Austin, Texas. But actually, Austin has pretty good Catholic. Well, maybe let's say it doesn't have good Catholic community. And your husband's like, yeah, let's go there. I'm sucks that we're not going to have Catholic community, but I got to make some money. And this is the best job offer. And you're like, we have a really good Catholic community here and I don't think I can make it. What do you do in that scenario? (laughs) Yeah, that's a tricky one. I think that, I mean, so first I would like to bring this back to like the whole thing of virtue that I think if you married a virtuous man, then he won't just be like, yeah, there's no Catholic community. Sucks. (laughs) Sucks. (laughs) Um, I don't think that's the attitude a virtuous man would take on. Um, I think that he would, obviously consider that a lot 
And if he kind of, and you would both discuss that as a married couple, but if at the end of the day, you still disagreed and he's like, yeah, I really think we could make it over in Austin or wherever. And I think we could still have a healthy spiritual community. Then I think, you know, I personally would kind of submit to his leadership in that scenario. But once again, it goes back to the idea of virtue. Cause if you married a virtuous man, then he will take your opinion into account and he will will your good above all else. And so there's no reason to fear that he's not taking your spiritual health and the importance of community for granted. You know, you shouldn't fear that with the man that you've chosen to marry. Man, that's got to be so difficult because if you're so certain, like I'm just thinking like I've had scenarios where I am absolutely 100% certain this is a wrong decision, but I don't have the authority to change it. And it's like, that's one of the most frustrating feelings in the world, in my opinion. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. If I was a, I don't know, with Ephesians, it's a, that's a tough call. I mean, for both, right? For both for a guy and the girl, but like, um, and that's, but, it's but, a lot yeah, of pressure not, on the man as well, like you've just true. said. And it's, I think a lot of, once again, we only read this passage from the female perspective so often because that's just like the culture that we live in with like feminism. You know, people think this has to be addressed, but this is a lot of pressure on the man as well. Like he has to be a very, he has to be a Christ-like leader. He has to lay down his life for his wife and his kids. Like this is no easy task for him. He's not getting like the easy part in this. He's getting a different role than you, but he, his role is very difficult as well. Has his own challenges. Yeah. Sure. But yeah, that's, hmm. yeah, that whole parish, it, it's it got to be like one of the primary things when you're thinking of where you're going to live, like Catholic community. So we read a book, uh, actually we didn't read it. We had it. I don't know if Dan's mentioned this. Uh, we had it in a proletariat meeting, shout out to them, on the Benedict Option. Okay. So I don't know if you've heard of it. It's it's this idea that we need to really be building strong Catholic communities, even if they're completely removed from like whatever success. And it kind of made a splash, in bit, referring back to St. Benedict going up to the mountains, founding the monasteries and a lot of type of stuff. But um, Clem put it this way. He said, okay, well, if I have a, you know, a, a six-figure job lined up, but I... Um, but it's with no Catholic community or something like that. And then I have Steubenville and I can't find any opportunities, but Kroger, am I supposed to work at Kroger and have Catholic community and barely make any money for my family or figure it out with six figure? I mean, it's the same, the same dilemma, but I guess you'd have to say like, if you know, it's better for your family, uh, you'd have to sacrifice the more money, I guess. I don't know. Well, (laughs) I also don't think that you necessarily need to be living in a place like Steubenville in order to have a healthy spiritual life and Mm. community. You know, obviously the community in a place like this is great. Like it's fantastic. It is above expectations. And for precisely that reason, you can't expect it everywhere you go. Um, And so there's a difference between living in a place that's just no Catholics, all the parishes are just, you know, heresy everywhere. No one's going to church. There's a difference. liturgical dancers. Yeah. (laughs) There's a difference between being in a place like that and then just being in a place where, yeah, there's definitely not as much community as Steubenville, but there's like a solid, there's a a solid parish. I have a few families here. There's a Catholic school we can make do. And especially because once again, going back to the domestic church idea, you have to take the lead on that. So you can never be like, oh, we're going to move to Steubenville where there's a great Catholic community and they're, the community is just going to take care of it. Because you as a parent, you still have to take the the take the take charge on that. You know, you are primarily responsible of making sure that your children 
pray and go to mass and do all those things. So you definitely, you don't have to, if you're taking the charge on that responsibly as a parent and you're dedicated to that, you don't have to live in a place as Catholic as Stoneville in order to build that good community and to have a good family life, you know, cause there are plenty of Catholics that didn't grow up with that community that are still very faithful. But, um, so yeah, community is definitely very important, but it all starts in the family. And so you don't have to live in a place like Steubenville. Mm. Yeah. There's a gradient. I mean, it's not, it's yeah. not all, you know, total heresy, Catholic parishes, and then all, you know, only Steubenville or other places. Um, I want to move kind of to like the education part, like yeah. people growing up. Okay. So I have, I have eight younger sisters. Okay. <laughs> so I'm the oldest, got my two brothers here in Steubenville. Uh, but we've been, I, I don't know. I've been scratching my head thinking, okay, where do they go? So my oldest sister uh, dropped out of public school and is now doing charter school because our high school has gone off the rails. I could kind of kind of handle it. Um, I went my public high school, Scripture Ranch, not shout out to them. They suck. But I uh, <laughs> graduated from there and they were peddling all sorts of just crazy stuff. Um, and I'm sure it's uh, I was already in my super Catholic phase where I was like, I, I had like a reversion of the faith super into theology, apologetics, the whole shebang. Like I would take all my professors, my teachers all the time. Uh, but my sisters are not that great at like filtering through the garbage that's getting peddled to them. And so my sister dropped out of that just doing charter from home. And my other sister is going to scripture ranch. I don't know how she's doing it, but uh, is there like, I'm trying to figure out yeah, with my sisters, do they need to go to Catholic university or like, is that an imperative for them to get formed in the right way um, or public university or whatever? Like, Yeah. So I went to a public high school and my experience with that personally is, so I did not lose the faith, obviously. <laughs> Congrats. <laughs> yeah. Going <laughs> out of do. that. Yeah. Many people do, unfortunately. But what I would say is that that period in public school was a period of very little growth in that there's just so many negative influences everywhere that I felt like I was using all my strength just to survive and just to make it out Catholic. Mm-hmm. If you prioritize, if you really want to make it a priority that these years should be me growing in virtue consistently, I don't think public school is the way to go. But if you're but I was also in high school, so I was younger, so that's different. Yeah. If you're already an adult going into university and you have a super solid foundation, you've been super solidly formed, then that could be different because you're already kind of in your adult life. Um, but my experience on the more high school level was I would not recommend. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. Uh, yeah, and like like a liberal education too. Um, are you studying English? Is that right? Or something I'm saying else? journalism. Journalism, got it, cool. Yeah, how's that program here, by the way? Yeah, it's good. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. You're the head editor for the Troop, right? I am. Yeah. Awesome. For the school newspaper. So it's very hands-on major, which is cool. Please forgive me. I've called it the snooze door before. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm really sorry about that. It's getting, It's gotten a lot better. Thank you. It's gotten a lot better. It was definitely the snooze door for the first three years I was here. Well, actually, you were writing for some of it before then. See, it's... see. A lot of people say that, but the thing is, all we do is report what's on campus, right? Oh, right. So I always, what I always tell people is if you want me to write about more interesting things, then go out and do something interesting, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yeah. It's because we're so boring. There's not much going on. You guys added, what is it? The uh, Joshua Judges Ruth, uh, the satire section was good. There's different columns and stuff like that. 
yeah, no, it's coming back. It's coming back. The gauntlet's <laughs> like the opinion article, yeah, whatever thing that we're doing. Uh, but yeah, journalism is really good. But I mean, you're getting the full liberal education, full, you know. Um, I'm wondering for my sisters, like, should they go off, be liberally educated and how that'll really affect their lives later on? Uh, I don't know. Maybe. Or maybe my sister shouldn't go to college and do whatever else. I don't I, I, No clue. No clue. My oldest sister is uh, the oldest sister is uh, a dancer, like a really good dancer. But I'm trying to not like. I don't know. I don't want her to go into the dance world right after high school. If it was my, my say, just because it's like, oh, it's full of mess up stuff and it's full of homos too. So what can you do? <laughs> I don't know what it is. Okay. Any of the performing arts That's just true. attracts a lot of homosexuals. <laughs> Am I wrong on that? <laughs> I mean, it's full of them. Um, so I don't know if that's the best thing to do right after high school. And it's also kind of a weird industry and stuff. Yeah. I mean, I can... Yeah, it is tricky. And I think that personally having the liberal arts education here at Franciscan has just been like so great for me. And I know that I, especially I didn't really have a foundation coming in because I was in public school. And so I really learned like about how to think (laughs) and how Mm -hmm. to, how to argue and like just how to think critically. And I read all these great thinkers and I just feel like such a more educated, enriched person. But then there's also the case that a lot of people did get that in high school. So I didn't. And a lot of people did. So coming to Franciscan, they don't even feel like, I mean, obviously you always grow a little bit, but they don't even feel like it's been revolutionary growth Mm. because they were just super solidly formed. And so it can really be on a case by case basis. I know for me that, you know, a lot of people were kind of saying coming in freshman year that they would rather not go to a school like Franciscan because, you know, it's not like a super highly ranked school. And for the particular field that they want to go into, maybe like dancing. We don't have dancing, but we have things like oh. theater and music. And obviously they're not the <laughs> most yeah, highly anyways. ranked program. No, they've been really good re- um, recently. Yeah. Yeah. But the people Shakespeare in the park, that was cool. Yeah. But I mean, like a lot of the people coming in say like theater majors, for example, they say, yeah, there are so many better theater schools, mm. but coming out of this, I'm going to be an actor or a performer who is holy and who is virtuous. And that kind of counts for more at the end of the day. Right. Yeah. Like JP, the greats doing that, right. They're, they're big on theater and performing arts and other stuff. But like you were saying with the liberal arts, like, I mean, I'm barely coherent now, um, <laughs> but just see me like right after high school, I had a lot more drive, like right after high school. I think when I came to Franciscan, the bubble kind of like, uh, didn't, didn't take that completely out of me, but I, I kind of like, I don't know if this is your experience in public high school either, but it like sharpened the blade of my like, I will destroy, you know, any any yeah. arguments that are opposed to the faith. Like I'll take them on. I used to read like voraciously. I just used to read all the time. No, that's definitely true. And then you like come out of that period of your life and you think you like know everything. It's like, oh, I I can like destroy any argument that anybody throws at me. At me, And I've definitely, I was definitely that way as well, leaving public high school. And I think that this liberal arts education has really humbled me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, totally. Me too. And then like you leave the bubble and you're like, wow, people believe this garbage. Like other garbage. You're like, wow, they're actually, I don't know. I think I've become less, uh, how how can I say it? Less understanding of ideas that are just garbage. (laughs) Like I, I, I'm of the opinion I won't argue with a whole swath of people because I just think it's, it's unless it's really worthy of my time, there are yeah. whole swaths of people that are so far gone ideological wise that 
it's somebody's task to try and get them straight, but it may not be mine at that point in time. Whereas before I was like, if there's anyone I can argue against, right? And I, I'm going to I'm gonna convert them right there. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm being cynical. I talked to Dan, actually Dan <laughs> with our podcast before about atheists. I was just like, uh, you know, like the, in the Bible of uh, the fool said in his heart, there is no God. I was like, yeah, that's kind of how I approach atheists now. They're all fools. You know, they'll figure it out at some point. But anyways, that's what the bubble's done to me. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's all about, you know, having that basis in having a certain foundation. And I agree that there comes a certain point where you can't even argue with people anymore when you have no basis at all. Hmm. Um, You know, so. If we're taking marriage, for example, you know, so we were taking marriage earlier. So this this passage that we read about Ephesians that even Catholics are still having lively debates about today. You can't really debate about that with an with someone who believes that marriage is just this like fake institution and it doesn't mean anything because like you need to come in with certain ideas. You need to believe in marriage, believe in love, believe in self-gift. And then you can talk about the practicals of how that plays out. Mm -hmm. But like, yeah, it's like, I don't even know how to begin to discuss something like this, something like submissiveness to someone who doesn't accept marriage even. Yeah. And add to that someone who's like in a relationship that is you know, either they're in the hookup culture or they're living with their girlfriend or boyfriend of like a year. Um, these things aren't, aren't just ideas. They're actually like, Oh no, you need to change your life. Like your your life's kind of screwed up right now. Like that, that's the extra layer that, um, it has a real effect on, you know, it's, it's people's lives too. These aren't just ideas for them, you know? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How to approach Oh man, I can't even imagine with like Catholic parents when they're, they send their kids off to public universities, right? And they say, oh, they'll, you know, okay, let's just take it girls, boys to the side, but send your girl off, uh, your, your daughter off to a public university and, uh, hope that they don't, you're Catholic, hope that they don't get into whatever hookup cultures in that public university that they don't meet some that she doesn't meet some you know terrible guy for her at that university that she doesn't get indoctrinated with some type of like female empowerment and all men are you know pigs and you need to i don't even begin to understand how they think the risks aren't enormous <laughs> at least from a parent's yeah. perspective they really are and it's it's really sad nowadays because you know it is funny because they they always preach about you know keep your keep your religion out of our schools you know the whole separation of church and state and so you know we can't can't pray in school we can't have a cross on the wall we can't read the bible but you know there's this whole other religion of modern day progressivism that is so fully permeated into this like like people aren't just indoctrinated with mm. it at school and it just is ironic it's like university that does it you know, Kellen brought up like multiple times. Kellen's not here, by the way. He's in uh, North Carolina with a buddy of his, but he's come back. Uh, should be back on Thursday when we have our podcast. But he keeps bringing up his friend goes to UC Santa Barbara and they had a conference on campus with multiple speakers about how to have better sex. I'm not kidding about oh, this. Oh, no. And they brought sex toys and all sorts of stuff. And they were teaching these college age kids that. Okay. <laughs> what type of culture do you have on a campus that it leads to that? I, I think... Not only do you indoctrinate these kids, but you um, you leave them sexually vulnerable 
and then they're more easily uh, they more easily accept the the indoctrination because they're literally living it. You know, I I think it goes hand in hand the the sexual degradation on campuses and the ready acceptance of ideologies. Yeah, I would agree, and I think that yeah, it all goes back to what we were talking about earlier with just solid family and just learning how to love and what it means to love. I think that that's ultimately just at the root of everything. And it's hard to like my first thing when I see when like when you brought up like a sex talk or something, you know, like the first thing that I immediately think is like, wow, like that's not that's not how you love someone. That's how you use someone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's like it's just like how to there's an entire talk on like how to use someone better. <laughs> and obviously, you know, in in marriage, you know, the sexual act is an act of love, of course. But like you're they're so focused on like the technique and the use part and they're not just like how do i love this person how do i lay down my life for this person <laughs> it's so absurd oh it's so absurd i was thinking also like you know like in the catholic side we have chastity speakers and something i could never see myself being that <laughs> like fly around the country and tell kids about how to be chased or whatever man that'd be awkward that's quite a sacrificial thing these guys do what what like uh matt frad and jason everett and these type of guys well, Fred's done different stuff, but Jason Everett, even that seems to be public speaking about that stuff. I don't know. I could do it on the Kellen and Alex show, but not on <laughs> not, not in front of thousands of people, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Man, the, yeah, like how to actually love people, you know, like why do we need sex ed classes in high schools and all that type of stuff? And like people aren't, by the time you're like 12 or 13, like it's not, it's not a, rocket science at some point, uh, kids are going to figure it out. You're teaching them all the sex ed stuff. And then here's another thing. A lot of our culture under understands sex from pornography. And like, there's so much, let's say, um, you know, human actions carry with it ideas. Like there's ideas inherent in what you do. And if pornography is showing you, this is how reality is, especially at a young age, like kids, you know, isn't it like the average age is like 13 or 14 for boys um, where they start uh, at least exposed to pornography once. Um, if if that's the information that guys are getting, and let's say some girls as well, about how men and women, uh, that's reality. Right? The porn, porn life's reality. And then like, then send them to university with co-ed, tons of women, and then also be teaching the women uh, female empowerment and you should, you know, your body, you could do whatever you want with your body. And then you're teaching them all this ideology and then there's no grace, there's no Christianity. Anyways, we got some recipe for uh, not very Christian virtue there. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. Yeah. And I mean, I've already said it multiple times, but I'll say it again that you know, everything you do and all your relationships have to be rooted in this Christian charity. And you have to realize that you need the grace of God. And it's like you said, the way people are being taught today just excludes that completely oftentimes. And it's really sad because yeah, you can't be virtuous alone without grace. Mm. (laughs) You need God and you need God to show you how to love. You need to try to love like God. And if you try to take God out of it, you've taken all the love out of it because God is love. Maybe it's a chicken or the egg thing about like, how do you, do you, push Christianity as true and then teach them, let's say the right relationship of man and woman, marriage, sexuality, all that stuff? Or do you show them like, 
no, all the stuff's actually hurting you and then bring the Christianity in after that. I think, I think if you really talk to people today, a lot of them know that's hurting them. People, people know what they want. You know, people have this desire to be loved and I think people know when they're not being loved and sometimes you have to kind of get it out of them. But you know, when you show someone what it actually means, you know, that's what a lot of people say when they come to Franciscan. It's like, I never knew I could have a community like this. I never knew I could have friends like this. I never knew that life was so great free from this sin. But like, um, once they realize, once they become aware of that lack, then like they're very open to filling it like with the good. Yeah. When I came here, like you were saying about for some people, it's not a revolution. Like they went to Catholic school. They had good community. Man, it was a revolution for me. <laughs> yeah. You know, like first time like, whoa, this is what Catholic life looks like. And there is no very, you know, the hookup culture. No, not Franciscan. We are, I think, very, you know, not completely perfect, but definitely not like a California public school or something like uh, or a public university. Yeah. And you can really see because that's what struck me coming to Franciscan as well. Just how happy everyone is and how healthy people's relationships are here. It's like, well, dang, like they must be doing something right. <laughs> are you saying the dating culture at Franciscans actually pretty good? <laughs> I think so. Despite despite um, common word on campus, mm. <laughs> it has its flaws, but I think generally good. Because <laughs> one of our, our most listened to podcasts was with uh, Claudio. Do you know Claudio? Mm, yes. Ferrari. Revving our engines with Ferrari. If you haven't listened to that one, please listen to that one. It was a fantastic podcast. But we talked a lot of dating culture at Franciscan. And um, whether it's good, whether it's whatever, I, um, he pointed out like, Sometimes girls won't be willing to go on dates because they're waiting for Mr. Perfect. That's mm -hmm. always kind of the common. Didn't we have that uh, the, the debate? Uh, this house believes the dating culture, the lack of dating at Franciscan is due more to standoffish females and immature males. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which is like. Anyways, okay. Is there? Uh, do you think that's a real criticism of Franciscan dating? Standoffish females. I think. To an extent. Okay. I think that, I don't think women are standoffish. I think that's a, I think that's a, a bit Such far. a weird term too. Like yeah. We're not, we're not mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think some girls might be, I think in general, when it comes to dating, you should just have the attitude going in of like, yeah, you should probably say yes to the guy most of the time. If he's like, a good guy, you know, at Franciscan, like most guys are like good guys. Like mm -hmm. if you know, he's like a good person who's Catholic, then you should just say yes. You know, I think in general, um, cause why not? Yeah. See wow. What just say yes. I, I mean, like that. <laughs> just coffee. Yeah. And then after one date, you're like, I don't know if it'll work out. No, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. Yeah. Why do people think it's such a big deal? Maybe. I mean, there's all that social, um, like, oh, are they a thing, you know? Yeah, well, because everyone's coming to Franciscan wanting to get their MRS degree, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yep, their but... MRS degree. Looking at you nursing majors. Oh, got them. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I really, like, for, for all the flack it gets, I think that the dating culture of Franciscan is pretty healthy in general. At least in the sense of, like, people are pursuing virtue and people want to get married. <laughs> That's it's great. <laughs> Pursuing virtue, want to get married. So go on a date, maybe. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> See what hmm. happens. So if the guy asks, get, gets the courage to ask, give him at least one chance. 
That's what you're saying. At least a Franciscan. I mean, I mean, not. I mean, it depends, it depends on, on the, the situation. Person. It depends yeah, the it depends situation, on the person. Maybe not if he's generally weird, be open to it. but generally be open to it. Yeah, you never hmm. know what God will throw your way. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. And from the guy's perspective, uh, okay, immature males. Is that? I guess the criticism there is guys not willing to ask out girls or not willing to yeah, be guess- in a committed relationship. I think the criticism is being too scared or kind of like over discerning it, which also isn't great. Over discerning. Oh, yeah. That's a good term. <laughs> I like that. Okay. So, yeah. Well, I think that was another one of the criticisms is uh, Franciscan dating. You know, I need to really pray over it. I need to like discern like from the first date if this is the one I'm going to spend the rest of my life with, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, is that a fair criticism of Franciscan yeah. dating? Yeah. And I think what a lot of people need to realize is that going on the dates is the discerning, you know, cause you're not going to get to know this guy or girl by sitting in the port and thinking about them. Mm. <laughs> you know, you get to get to know them by talking to them. To them. The That's true. Yeah. Port date. <laughs> <laughs> just like an hour long date in silence in the port. And then you just say goodbye at the end of the night. <laughs> and then you just have direct apprehension from the mind of God <laughs> yeah. of the person you're next to direct <laughs> yeah. knowledge, access of the ideas, as Augustine says, platonic yeah. forms. I think discernment is often an active process. Like actively getting coffee and talking to somebody. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Mm. And then all your household sisters are, oh my gosh, she's having coffee. Let's watch in the background. (laughs) Tell me about it. Tell me about it. You know, all that type of stuff. (laughs) Yeah. And that's unavoidable. (laughs) Yeah. There's, yeah, it, it is unavoidable in a lot, in a lot of, uh, in a lot of ways. And I think some people are just like, I don't want to go through that hassle, you know, uh, the social pressure, the pressure in general. I'll just focus on my grades. But freshman fall. Oh, man. Everybody's ready to, to date everyone. Yeah. Except did, this semester, I guess. <laughs> did you meet Dan freshman fall or was that sophomore? sophomore fall? Sophomore fall. Yeah. Okay. This is crazy, too. Okay. So you and Dan uh, got together for the first time. And then on two years ago... Let me see. That was like you had your anniversary, anniversary rather. A couple like, weeks ago. A couple weeks ago. Okay. Paul and Maria, my brother, yeah. they got together the day after, two years ago, after you guys got together. <laughs> Not kidding. And you guys didn't know each other at the time. And then uh, Naish and Justine got together the day after that. No, they're <laughs> oh, the no, day on the same before day us. Oh they're, the, oh, they're the day before you guys. Yeah. Okay. Well, Paul, Paul and uh, Maria and Justine and Naish. Had the same anniversary two yep. years ago, and then yours is the day after. Providential. Who knows? Uh, Pretty funny. I thought it was really funny. <laughs> These are all um, all friends of ours. Um, and then my brother, Paul. Uh, yeah, dating a Franciscan. Hmm. Get the <laughs> ring by spring before your senior spring. That's what everybody, uh, everybody aspires to. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, if you're going to find a Catholic spouse, Franciscan's a not a bad it. place. I, that's got to be in, you know, when you're... Uh, Catholic family is thinking, okay, I'm going to lay out a lot of money for my kid to go to some school. Like they could go to the state school for a lot less. Um, that's probably in the mind of a lot of people when they send their kid up to a Catholic, you know, Franciscan university. Yeah, I would bet so. <laughs> You're like, that's a lot of money. And it is a lot of money. Although Franciscan's pretty generous with stuff. It I is. I think so. Yeah. But, it's a good investment on many levels. Highly recommend. <laughs> highly recommend. Heard here first. Uh, yeah. Man, Franciscan. Yeah. What a blessing to have. It was the first time when I came here where I was like, whoa, there are people here who are as crazy as me. <laughs> yeah. Especially with the theology stuff. When I met a bunch of guys my age who were just like, 
oh, well, I'm, I'm going to do a climax. Oh, yes, I've been reading Augustine and, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, oh, yes, there's grace of nature. Uh, and I was like, oh, my gosh, these guys read the same stuff I do. Uh, you know, and, and then you find, you know, there's also girls who are, you know, raised Catholic and actually have values and stuff. It's a whole different. It really is Planet Studentville. <laughs> yeah, it is great. And what we were talking about earlier with like community. Um, yeah, definitely so present here on campus. And, you know, earlier we we're talking about community more with, um, you know, like maybe between wives or between like um, sets of husbands and wives, you know, communities and parish or whatever. But community in the sense of friendship, you know, with just like fellow guys and girls here on campus, it's the friendships here are so great. And it really introduced to me being here, like this new level of friendship of, you know, we don't just enjoy each other's company and share some laughs, but we also help each other on the pursuit of virtue. Mm. And that is definitely something that I never actually considered, you know, looking for in a friend before. And then here, it's such a blessing that you have friends who you can look to them. If you're struggling, you can look to them for advice and you can just be like, wow, like they're a great person. I want to be more like them. How about the guy girl friendships, but not dating relationships? This is something Claudia (laughs) talked about. Like, Let's go back to the immature males part of it. Um, so a guy is hanging around a girl a lot. They're talking a lot, but he doesn't take the step to make it a committed relationship, but they're becoming really emotionally attached to each other. Like, should he start asking her on a date or try and reduce, you know, the time they spend together? Like, how do you, how do you navigate that? Let's say from a guy's perspective. Well, from a guy's perspective, I can. <laughs> well, not for, I'm not saying from, but like from the guy's situation. Yeah. I mean, maybe, well, okay, let's, let's take it first then. Let's say a girl's becoming, you know, is talking with yeah. this guy a bunch. Um, does she like tell him like, Hey, like date me or. Yeah. I think that's a great thing to do. I think intentionality is so important on both sides, guy or girl. And you seem to know what you want at the end of the day. And don't fool yourself into pretending that you can like ignore your emotions or change your emotions. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, if you're feeling yourself um, being attracted to this person, then, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, if they said they didn't want a relationship or something, well, then that's the end of that. But you shouldn't pretend that you can just like make a conscious decision one morning to change how you feel because that's hard. I mean, like we can't just do that. And Mm -hmm. so just be in touch with what you feel, know like what your situation is, what you want out of it. And then just be intentional about it. And obviously like talk to the other person about it, but it's all about intentionality and just like knowing, yeah, just knowing that you can't just like turn your emotions on and off. Yeah. (laughs) Whereas the guy, maybe it's a little bit easier to kind of turn his emotions on and off. He's like, okay, we're hanging out, whatever, and all this stuff. But I mean, from what was it? Dr. Plato, Dr. Plato was on the podcast once. Mm -hmm. He's like, yeah, no, women are superior. They just said it like straight up. And I was like, okay, great, cool. You know? And he's like, yeah, they're so much more integrated with their emotions and the reality and whatever. Like us guys can just, you know, ramble on about some really important issue and then like be yelling at each other basically the whole time. <laughs> but, uh, and I'm not saying this is for all girls or whatever, but like, like, are they really angry at each other? Like are they about to kill each other. Um, but like in some ways, like fight ideas and all that stuff. And we can just turn off emotion for a little bit, but he's Plato's like, no, actually like we're way less integrated as guys as we need to with like emotionality and how that really affects your reality. Um, how does ideas and stuff actually really matter? Like, uh, and then I think too, like a guy can, uh, this is how Claudia put it too. He's like, kind of see it as a game getting female attention. 
like, uh, oh, wow, look at me. Like, I got a number of girl, you know, friends that are girls and stuff, and they seem to like me and whatever, um, and play it kind of like a game and kind of turn off the emotions, turn on the emotions when you want and that type of stuff. That can really screw people up. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. And then from a girl's perspective, it's like, well, does he not like, is he not in, into me? Not doesn't find me attractive. Doesn't isn't interested. Yeah, it's really. Yeah, it's an interesting. I definitely would think that I would definitely would agree that women are very in touch with our emotions, sometimes maybe a little too much, sometimes to the point of overthinking. But yeah, it's. um. Yeah, it's really just about, well, because you mentioned this earlier and just talking about how actions have objective meanings mm. and, you know, you might have these like thoughts on the side of like, oh yeah, maybe it makes you feel kind of good, but just being very aware of um, how it's making you feel, what the objective meaning of the action is and then how it's making the other person feel. You should always consider how it's making the other person feel, of course. Yeah. And if you're not taking that to consideration, like you're you're just playing the other person in a lot of ways. You're yeah. playing with their emotions to give you some type of emotional response. Mm-hmm. That's really bad. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and then from the immature guy's perspective, it's like, well, you know, oh, I don't really have enough time to dedicate to a relationship, but I really like how this person pays a bunch of attention to me and I kind of have this kind of social feeling with it. Um, That, not only is that immaturity, that's really just kind of evil, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, totally. <laughs> Okay, and if a girl realizes like, okay, this guy's not actually interested in me and is not mature enough to actually want to have a committed relationship, I mean, should she just kind of like fade out of that? Yeah, and my my personal advice would be to probably distance yourself from that relationship because once again, you can't really turn off your emotions. And so if you really like this guy and he's made it clear he has no intention of dating, then I think the healthiest thing for you, although you obviously won't want to do it in the moment, I think the healthiest thing would be to kind of, like you said, kind of fade out of that relationship. And I think the same goes for guys as well. It'll be, it'll be better for you in the long run to not put yourself through that mental agony of like, oh, well, maybe one day. And that happens with breakups too. It's like all of a sudden it's like, okay, got to stop talking with this person. Emotional attachment's got to be gone. Well, okay. Yeah. And this is what I asked Claudia. Maybe I'll I'll put it to you as well is how do you do a breakup? Well, gosh, I don't know. I've never been through a breakup. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Not not saying for any personal experience, but like in general, how would you do a, a breakup? Well, I don't know. Oh man. Do you do that kind of like, cliff is just like gone done like no emotional you don't talk to them much at all delete the phone number like what do you or do you say kind of fade out like we were saying before like okay we'll just kind of be friends again well you Uh, probably can't be friends again after that because there are too many emotions invested so it does kind of have to be like a final type of thing i would think so once again like you might be, no you'll personal be cordial experience with them maybe, but yeah yeah you know. don't be rude but i think it'd be very difficult to be friends don't key their car or like blow up their tires okay yeah don't do one I don't saw? take any advice from a taylor soot song <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh man oh geez t swift uh the craziest one i saw okay so video of this uh this lady uh had she was gonna like went, went to the guy's car the window was rolled down she had a Full tank, uh, full like gallon of gas, gasoline, poured gasoline in his car, like a ton of gasoline, got a match 
and was standing over the 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 door and then threw the match in and it exploded and she got like thrown back like 15 feet or something and she was she ran away after that but i was like yeah somebody got a really bad breakup i guess oh my gosh <laughs> and uh i don't know how do people not understand gasoline can take a semi truck like five miles down the road it has a lot of energy in that you can't just be close to that with gasoline <laughs> That's off. That's off tangent. But don't do that to somebody if you break up. Don't uh, ignite their car on fire, key their car, any of that type of stuff. But yeah, breakups. I mean, because you do become really emotionally invested, and it and it's kind of like, you know, like um, you feel as though the time was wasted in some way. Like, wow, I spent all this time and energy investing all these emotions into this person, and ultimately we had to call off everything. Yeah. Although I do, you know, I think I have spoken to people who've said that, you know, despite this relationship not working out, that they did grow a lot. Um, Because I think in any relationship, but like especially a romantic one, you learn to love better Um, when you have fights, when you are when you inevitably encounter like the flaws and the shortcomings of the other person, you learn to love through that. And so hopefully if you had like a good relationship, you know, and your relationship was once again, virtue as an element, then even if you break up, you can at least say like, I grew in love and I loved well, and I'm like ready to like love again, you know, ready to move on. The next week you got a new boyfriend. No, not, maybe not that <laughs> take, take a little bit of time. Take a little bit of time, I guess. Uh, yeah, and those, yeah, those emotions are take a while. I mean, it takes a while to build those emotions, and then when they have to end all at once, yeah, that type of emotional dependency. And okay, do you think people take too long dating? What do you mean too long? Let's just say I'm just putting it super general. Too long meaning take like uh, you know. Three years to date. And let's oh. let's assume they're not living together or sleeping yeah. with each other. No, I actually think that you should be very intentional, not in just pursuing like a relationship. Once you're in the relationship, I think that um you just need to go from the, know from the get-go, get to know the other person's values, what they want in life, what they stand for. Um, those things shouldn't be things that you explore at the end of the relationship. You know, so many secular couples, they may even be living together and they've never talked about politics even, you know, it's like, it's great when you're in a relationship, obviously, you know, don't do like the whole talk about marriage on the first date, but just early on, you know, get a feel for what are their intentions? What are their values? What do they want out of life? And then I think you'll find that you're ready for marriage after not too long of a time. And especially too, when you have that mindset going in of, um, marriage is being not all just about emotions, but about choices. Um, you know, like you make a choice to love this person for the rest of your life. And even if you don't feel the emotion anymore, you're going to make that choice to be committed to them. So you'll find when you date someone, you don't have to date them for three or four years to realize, okay, we have common values. We want the same things. We love each other a lot. And I'm ready to make that choice with this person. Mm. Because, you know, I think one of the temptations of people dating for a really long time is they say, Oh, but like, I have to be sure, like we have to date for like three or four years and make sure that that feeling doesn't go away. Whereas like, I mean, a lot of people at Franciscan, a lot of Catholics are like, well, I don't really care because I, it's a choice and I'm going to choose to love this person for the rest of my life with my entire being. And you don't need to date someone for like five years in order to do that. Right. Yeah. Like five years. Jeez. Uh, 
John Chrysostom had this thing uh, back in like Constantinople back in the day. The parish, basically, the parents would meet together of like families uh, who had like children of marrying age and just meet with them and be like, Yeah, I know your family seems cool and all this stuff. Like, ah, oh, it sounds great. And then they just get them married without ever meeting them. <laughs> and they go to the church, they get them married, you know, they, they marry there. And Chrysostom wrote this whole homily about how like this arranged marriage works out so well <laughs> for so many people. And he's like, the love is there and all this stuff. And I'm reading it. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> like, what are you talking? What? Can you imagine never meeting someone your parents arranged? Well, yeah, it's arranged marriages. Uh, no, and then Chrysostom's like, it works out. They have, they're, they're in great relationships and they move on from there. And like, for us, it's like, no, you need like multiple years. You need to figure out who's the one. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's, it's about your attitude towards marriage, I think. And it's, I don't recommend arranged marriages. <laughs> I personally, <laughs> like, I personally like getting like to Catholic know the person. Monarchy, you don't like arranged marriages. You, what? <laughs> all of it. But, we need all of it back. But yeah, at the end of the day, I mean, the reason that arranged marriages will work out for certain people is that they know in their head that like what marriage is, is I'm going to be dedicated to this person for the rest of my life. And so even if it's not like it doesn't end up being your favorite person in the world, even if you have different senses of humor and like different TV shows, <laughs> um, you know, you know that that's not what love is all about. <laughs> and so what I mean, if your husband makes terrible puns all the time. I mean, what do you do with that situation? You know, and I'm yeah. looking at you, Josh Feibelman. <laughs> And you should go in with that attitude. Um, even after dating, you should still go in with that attitude of we're married. That's that. Now this is going to be the rest of my life and I'm going to love this person for the rest of my life. And things might change. Things probably will change, but that's that because I've made this decision out of love to love. And yeah, I definitely think that more people today need to go in with that mindset mm. of once again, you don't need to do an arranged marriage, <laughs> but just have that sense of the, I guess, like the, I was going to say the finality of marriage. I'm not sure if that's like the right word for it, finality. but just of like, this is like, this is the real deal. <laughs> and maybe that's okay to be a little sympathetic to the people who kind of keep dating a little bit longer or whatever. I mean, it is, if you're Catholic and you're thinking, yeah, no, it's one is one person for the rest of your life, right? Uh, even go back to like Matthew 19, right? Where Jesus talks about divorce and remarriage and basically says not permissible anymore, right? Because under the Torah, you could divorce and remarry if there were adultery or some like serious thing, or even there was different interpretations that you could divorce for other causes. And Jesus is like, nope, from the beginning, you made them male and female, can't divorce. And then his apostles come up and they're like, if that's the case, it's, expedient not to marry like geez you better not rush into it and then that's when jesus talks about the eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom which are obviously the apostles uh and and the the clergy and whatever but yeah for catholics you're thinking no this is one person for the rest of your life and there's no like out of this i can be kind of sympathetic to be like yeah let's make sure this is the right person yeah let's really no for sure yeah but i think if you're very intentional about dating and that stuff that stuff will come out early on like the stuff that you need to know in order to make the decision mm. i think it will tend to come out sooner than later if you're dating for marriage as they say and yeah i mean yeah it is obviously it is hard it can be hard but just what an amazing way to grow in virtue and to grow in love i mean like what an amazing sacrament that like God has given us. I mean, like, yeah, it's hard, but I mean, if it was easier, I mean, if we, there's a reason that we're not all called to religious life, you know? Yeah. And 
I mean, I guess one of those reasons is that the human race would die out. <laughs> but I just mean that marriage is a beautiful, beautiful way to get to heaven and to get your spouse to heaven. And it's such an amazing opportunity to grow in virtue, to grow in humility, and to just become a better person, to raise kids who are going to do the same thing. And so, yeah, it's difficult. But fear like that shouldn't stop you because, you know, it's just such a beautiful way to grow in holiness. Mm. And what you're saying about emotions, like those are eventually going to fade or maybe tested at different times. It's like, but if you're intending like, no, I'm here to make a family with this person, that's a very different intentionality than like, do they, you know, do they make me emotionally happy? Do they make me happy? Whatever. It's like, no, I'm, we're now family. Like we're stuck with each other. That's, that's it. Like, you know, I didn't choose Paul or Gabe to be my siblings, right? My two <laughs> brothers. It's like, after you make that oath, it's like, no, you guys are husband and wife. There's no reset button. No, that's just, and that's why it's such a big decision for people. It's like, there's, there's no other of that choosing family in that same type of way. Like you're choosing them and their family um, permanently. <laughs> and that's yeah. your that's your life from then on. But it's so beautiful. Just like that level of commitment, you know, and it's, it's beautiful and scary at the same time. Yeah, I mean? but I mean, the cross is always scary. I mean, because bringing it back to like the image of Christ in the church, I mean, like Christ really committed. I mean, he he was scourged and he went to the cross and he died and he never thought about it twice. He was like, this is what, this is what I'm going to do for my people. And, you know, it is just, it's so beautiful in that, like it, you know, that it's going to be a sacrifice in certain respects, but you're just so ready to that because you love this person and you want to love this person and you want to get them to heaven and you want to grow in love and you want to, once again, be able to love more like Christ. Let's move liturgically for a okay. second. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Women in the liturgy. Okay. Oh, uh, <laughs> Altar girls. Altar girls. Good or bad? Well, they are allowed by the church. Yes. So there's that. My personal opinion is that I think it's not an ideal situation to have altar girls. And my reason for that is I think that, well, nowadays there's a big push for women to, a lot of women are pushing for women priests. And I think that- I think that a lot of people, their thinking kind of goes up the ladder in that. So especially like post Vatican II, you have more like involvement in the liturgy with lay people. You have like lectors, Eucharistic ministers, um, gift bearers, and then altar servers as well. Um, now is more open. And so a lot of people, their thinking kind of progresses in that way. If like when they see a woman, a woman go on the altar as an altar server, as a lecturer or something, then their mind's like, oh, well, why can't she be a deacon if she can be an altar server? And then if a woman can be a deacon, well, why can't she be a priest? And so, I mean, yeah, female altar servers are allowed. And there, I'm not going to argue that there's anything objectively wrong, but I think that it might start a problem that we don't want started. <laughs> and I think a lot of people can misinterpret that, especially, mm -hmm. you know, especially for those little girls who are they grow up serving at the altar for them. It's like, Oh, well, I've done this my entire life. Why can't I be a deacon or a priest? You know? So it, it can tend to confuse people, which is my apprehension with it. Hmm. Yeah. Cause it's like leading, like, I mean, you do everything else except for, you know, the elevation and, you know, women can hand out communion as well, be Eucharistic ministers, do the music. Yeah. And typically that is like a preparation for the priesthood, you know, like at least in my diocese, the seminarians go through all those different, roles and then like the seminarians go through like a year where they do altar serving and then they go through a year where they are like lectors like 
I forget what the other like fancy minor order names yeah. are, but I just mean like they learn all those things as like preparation for the priesthood. Mm-hmm. And so, but I feel like that's kind of been lost now. It's just kind of saying like, oh, you always send your kid to be an altar server. And it's not a bad thing. I mean, it's great to get, you know, like a little boy involved in altar serving if it'll mean like, you know, he's more involved in like the mass and he learns more about it. So it's not a bad thing. But I mean, there is also this sense in which it's like preparation. And I don't think we have that sense anymore. You're leading up like, they're preparing those seminarians like preparing to eventually do i think i used to know the whole order of like what they used to go through yeah i think it started with porter which is like literally they just open and shut the doors yeah it's like <laughs> awesome i love it oh and they would also get tonsured which is like you get you know like the the friar like the old school friars like the where they circle. have the bald spark yeah they would do that it was called you get tonsured and they still do it in some of the like the fraternity of saint peter does it so your first year, you get your head shaved in that really <laughs> stupid way. It's great. It's really humbling. And then you like open and shut the door every day. <laughs> it's just so great. And then eventually you work to like acolyte, which I I guess it means you alter serve a little bit and you do these type of things and, and then you move up and eventually you become a deacon and then yeah. eventually you become, actually you go sub deacon, then deacon, and then eventually priest and so all working up towards the altar. Exactly. But yeah, that whole cycle, like you're saying, it starts when you put girls in there, it's like she's thinking, well, I mean, am I on that cycle now? Like, why can't I just be a deacon or a priest at some point? Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, nowadays, because I've had this discussion with a few people at my parish and I would like raise it. And then they would express shock at the idea that a woman isn't allowed to be an altar server. Be like, oh, that's like terrible, like discrimination. And (laughs) then if they express such shock at that, then I, I I start to think like how long until they express the same kind of shock at women not being allowed to be priests, mm. you know? Yeah. And there's a lot of people who think they should. Yeah. And they think that's your, the church is so outdated once again, yeah. is uh, denying women the ability to, to be priests, to be deacons. That was the whole scare with the Amazon Synod. Uh, one of the classic Kellen and Alex, Alex show, uh, <laughs> we did something like five podcasts on the, uh, uh-huh. <laughs> on the Amazon Sydney back in the day. And that was a big scare that they were going to make women's, uh, women deacons. Yeah. And that would have thrown everything. And they didn't ultimately, although they gave a lot of hints towards it, but, uh, yeah. What, what would you say to people? Cause I've known people who women particularly who have struggled with, like, they thought like, no, I, I think I want to be a priest. It's just the church is not letting me. Like, how do you, how would you approach someone who thinks that? Yeah. So I think you have to realize that I think we hear this word hierarchy and we think that it's like almost like a hierarchy of holiness and that like the priest is necessarily holier than everyone in his parish. And, um, especially when you see the priest on the altar, you're like, oh, he's like above everyone here. He's leading everyone here because he's like the best. And so like, if I want to serve God in this great exceptional way, I have to be a priest. Mm. Um, And you have to realize that priests are servants to the people in their parish, you know, like they're working all the time administering the sacraments, but the sacraments are for us. You know, spend hours hearing confession so that we can be cleansed of our sin and doing baptisms, doing marriages, the whole Eucharist, of course, so that we can be nourished. Cause I mean, they can say a private mass, they can have the Eucharist whenever they want, but they do daily masses. So we can be nourished by the Eucharist. And then, you know, they're always going to hospitals and administering anointing of the sick. It's a service role. And so it's, it's fundamentally incorrect to be like, 
to, to think that, oh, women have a lesser place in the church because we can't be priests, because the church has never believed that priests are better than lay people, right? Priests are serving lay people with their lives. And so that is just the wrong way to look at it. And a better way to look at it is when you think about religious life, religious life is also open to women. And the church teaches that it's a higher vocation than being a lay person. Mm. And so if you want to do something radical and exceptional like that, then you should think about being a sister. Um, But there's no reason to think that being a priest is somehow higher or better than being a sister, for example. Or empowering. Yeah. And it's all this power language. (laughs) Like they import like power language to Christianity. It's like. No, precisely. And Christianity is is about the complete opposite of power. It's about Mm. serving and it's about humbling yourself and it's about giving of yourself. But they would say, oh, that's all a ruse, right? I mean, it's really about the power. I mean, it has to be, right? Yeah. I mean, the hierarchy has to be for the hierarchy, obviously, right? Yeah. But, you know, Christ you know, Christ came to serve, not to be served, you know, is what they say in the Bible. And so you can't go into this idea of, oh, well, when will women have all these positions of power in the church? Like, that's what we need. It's like, well, as Catholic, like you shouldn't be seeking power, you know? And I do get wanting to be in a position of influence and maybe like wanting to help out in the church and wanting to like, you know, have like good like advice or something but then that could be like there are a lot of women on like councils and like vatican and whatnot there are a lot of women who teach who do ccd who do youth groups and those are great positions of influence so if your concern is oh you want to be able to reach out to people and to spread the gospel there are so many avenues you could do that and the priesthood is not the only avenue i think that people target the priesthood because once again they have this idea that the priest is more powerful and that means you're better. And we just don't think that at all. Mm. Like it's helpful to think, you know, another word for a priest is like a pastor, you know, like a shepherd of his flock yeah, of Jesus's flock, you know, who, which has been trusted to him. And if you don't think there's been influential women in church history, just look at the saints. I mean, yeah, <laughs> like Catherine of Siena calling out the Pope, mm-hmm. like get your ass back to Rome. <laughs> France is not where the papal seat is. Get it back. I got it back. I want to go to Avion at some point. It looks like a really cool place. Uh, <laughs> they they used to have the Pope there for like a long yeah. time. And Catherine's letter was so powerful. Eventually, the Pope got back. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, you think of like Mother Teresa, uh, Mary, maybe. I don't know. It's like, oh, these, these people weren't influential. You know, these saints weren't powerful. They weren't priests. It's like, you do not understand the Catholic faith at yeah. all, do you? Um, so I, I do think that the mindset you should go in with, right? If you want to help the church, then the question you should be asking yourself is how can I best serve, right? So given the talents that God has given me and just the capacity, my abilities at this time, like how can I best serve? And women can just, we can best utilize our gifts as women in capacities that aren't the priesthood. Hmm. And I think- the priesthood, I mean, we call priests father, right? And so a priest is supposed to be a father. And so we women who are mothers, you know, if not physical mother yet, then, you know, spiritual mothers in a way, um, we're not going to be able to exercise our spiritual motherhood in the best capacity by acting as a father. <laughs> you know, it's very contradictory. And so don't be asking yourself, what's the highest position I can occupy in this church? Ask yourself, how can I best serve? And that's not as a priest. <laughs> I'm just thinking of, I had a, 
weird situation. And I was in Wales on a um, in the UK on a trip for my choir, and we were going to sing in this church. And it was like really beautiful church. And I see this um, short black lady with a uh, purple uh, shirt with a collar on it, and she like comes up like, "Oh, welcome to the church," and all this stuff, and. Oh, I'm mother something. And man, I could not, for the life of me, bring myself to call her mother anything. <laughs> but it was Anglican. And I'm pretty sure Anglicans allow for, you can't even, it's, it's an impossibility of a woman priest or whatever. But um, I just remember, I, I'll never forget that because it was such a strange experience for me as a Catholic, obviously going there. And um, nearly all the other, the Anglicans, Episcopalians, even like Protestants, like having a woman as a pastor or as a priest or whatever, like, they don't seem to have much problem with it. Now, I think the overwhelming majority still is 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 men, but yeah. What is it with these backwards Catholics, man? You know. <laughs> <laughs> and see, when you said that, when you said the title "mother," I immediately thought of like of sisters, of sisters, yeah. yeah. And so there's this, you know, there's this order of sisters in my diocese that um, I see from time to time, and sometimes I'll go to their convent, I'll go to some like event things that they put on, and. Um, they're just the best. <laughs> like they're great. They're so joyful, so holy, so kind. Like what an example of just great virtuous womanhood. And when you think about that, but then you think about the um like the evangelical councils, right? That sisters take poverty, chastity, and obedience. And so it's obedience. It's not power. <laughs> and so these women, they're not they're not powerful in any way. They're all subject to the mother superior and even the mother superior is not like she's some like tyrant you know mm. she's a very prayerful discerning woman and um but they're so happy and they do so much good they touch so many hearts and they do so much good work because once again they're not worried about having a position of power or about a title or about setting themselves apart if any they're doing the opposite of setting themselves apart they're in this community where they, they where they share everything in common where they wear the same outfits they're doing anything to not set themselves apart. And yet they're doing so much good and touching so many hearts, like my mm. own included. And they're such inspirational women. That's like so incomprehensible to, to the world and to other people. I don't know. Uh, this is Father Dave uh, gave a homily like maybe two weeks ago or so about he had been on a forum during the Feast of St. Francis and was reading about some guy was posting about why St. Francis wasn't as great as people say he was and was like no francis actually was doing all this stuff and father dave was like how in the world do you badmouth saint francis <laughs> like everyone loves him there are people who will legit try and say mother Teresa was somehow manipulating or somehow getting public opinion or whatever and you just think like once again who the hell are these people and why would you ever badmouth mother Teresa? but there are people like I think we do have to understand like how people approach priesthood too, right? The secular world. They're all pedophiles, right? Or uh, they're all a bunch of homos, really. Unfortunately, those two accusations have some very small merit, not all, but you know, there's always been that problem in the church, uh, even going back to like the 1500s with uh, yeah, all sorts of different bad stuff going on. But the culture can't understand a guy renouncing marriage and family and sexuality, not renouncing sexuality, but renouncing marriage for the sake of the kingdom, totally incomprehensible. Likewise, a woman who's 
going to give up the same and then give up uh, any possessions, whatever, put on a, a habit. It's like, oh, they're just really like, how, how does the secular world even start to understand or, or provide some type of narrative for that? They have to go to the type of power stuff because yeah. like there is no ability of this. Like, what would you self-sacrifice for? For them, it's for you ask Mother Teresa, it's like, I'm doing it for Christ. I see Christ in these people. But for someone secular, they're like, that's where the um, I'll bring this into with like um, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you've seen that in scripture. So when the Pharisees accused Jesus of being possessed by the devil, <laughs> he cast out demons by the prince of demons. So the Pharisees were accusing Jesus of being Satan himself. That's pretty bad, you know, on the list of like things Jesus could be, you know, he's God incarnate or maybe he's just a prophet or maybe he's kind of like a nice moral teacher or he's kind of a bad guy or he's a really bad guy. He's a liar. No, he's freaking Satan himself. You know what I mean? It's like that seems to be likewise, you know, they uh, they persecuted me. They'll persecute you. That type of stuff. Um, Yeah. You really want to, if if you believe in Christ and you believe in God and you believe in salvation and you become a sister, it's like you're showing the world like, no, I'm actually doing this for Christ. Like no matter what you say, like what could be more powerful than that? You know, yeah. talking about empowerment. And connecting it to what we were talking about marriage earlier, you know, because it's the whole image of like, they're mirroring like the eschaton and like the marriage of the like, Christ and the church. Um, and, you know, even like when they say like, their habits are like their, um, like their wedding dresses, you know? Uh-huh. And I saw, I think I visited this like convent. Well, it was like, it was kind of sad. It was no longer convent. It was like a museum of a convent that used to be okay. there. I visited over the summer. I think it was Ursuline. And f- even though their habits are a different color, when the, um, nuns take, finally take their vows, like they take their final vows, they wear white to the ceremony, oh, wow. you know? Mm. And it's, it's so beautiful. And it's like what we were discussing earlier, how today it's so hard to even explain to people what we think about marriage. Cause there's no foundation there. And if they could understand at least that, then that could shed some light on religious life because there's so many connections between the two. But yeah, it's really, it is hard to explain to people what the appeal to something like that would be yeah. this total self-gived gift to our Lord and Savior, but just self-gift isn't on people's radar, say, let alone to a God that we can't see. Yeah. And even if not, you know, becoming a sister, like being totally, you know, committed to your husband and your husband to you in a Catholic marriage. And another big sign is like having a big family. That can always be a huge sign of like, why are you having a big family? That's, that's definitely curtailing your, uh, (laughs) your ability to have freedoms and do whatever. This is something Dr. Uh, Jones said, like having a large family is a natural remedy to greed. I was like, that's pretty profound. You know what I mean? Like, okay, you could have leased a BMW, but instead you had another kid and now you got to pay for hospital bills and they're, you know, yelling and uh, they're crying. You got to get them diapers, you know, diapers are freaking expensive. Uh, (laughs) It's like, yeah, I mean, you can't help but use your money towards your family in that way. And that's a huge sign to the secular culture. Like, no, my family's actually oriented towards God. Yeah. Doesn't all have to be go off into the desert and don the hermit's garb and eat locust and honey until the coming of Christ. Yeah, and it's so cool. It it takes your particular your circumstance. 
Yeah. Like you were saying, it doesn't have to all be religious. Otherwise the world would just end then, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it's like you were saying, like they, you know, people see having a big family, for example, as being so limiting and you know, like you take away all these freedoms, but like we were talking about freedom earlier. Like what is even the point of having freedom if you're not going to do anything with it? If you're just going to, you know, if your entire life is just these fleeting pleasures and these in the moment decisions that never amount to anything, like if we have freedom, we have the ability to do really good things. And like, that's great. What's the purpose of freedom if you're not going to do anything with it? Ah, it's like you good. you have this freedom. You have this ability to do these really good things and to commit yourself. And so do that. Like commit yourself to something great. <laughs> it reminds me of that Chesterton quote of uh, man invented the loudspeaker and then found he had nothing to say. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's in that same way. We invented all these freedoms for ourselves and then figured out we have nothing to do. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, eventually, I'm thinking my favorite book of all time, Dostoevsky, uh, Brothers Karamazov. One of the characters, Ivan, is in this kind of absurdist, uh, atheistic mode. He knows so much about Christianity. He he said, um, you know, I'm going to live until I'm going to drink the cup of pleasure uh, till I'm 35. And then I'm going to dash it all the ground and kill myself or become a Jesuit. (laughs) That was his atheistic reply to his meaningless life or whatever. But it's like he had the freedom. He had money, had the freedom to do whatever he wanted to. He was brilliant. But he's like he couldn't find any meaning in life other than, drink, you know, pleasure. Or if not that, just go ahead and kill yourself now or be a Jesuit, which is a really funny third option. <laughs> but for him at the time, Jesuit was like people who think they have total meaning and is going to go convert the world. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And I think for the uh, more inquisitive philosophical mind, it's like, no, yeah, um, that seems to be a pretty reasonable account but yeah it's cool with the the real liberty of the freedom of the sons of god the sons and daughters of god in in christ your life will look really radically cool <laughs> if you use that freedom oriented towards god and to christ it's a roller coaster it's great and it's it's what i mentioned when i was talking about the sisters earlier how whenever you meet someone who's just radically given their life to christ they're so joyful and you might be surprised it's like oh how can this how can this woman be happy like she doesn't own a pair of shoes like she has to borrow them from like you know they they belong to the order not to her you know but it's like they're so happy and it's honestly astounding and you see all these quote-unquote free people out in the secular world doing whatever they want and they like they see these people they're like wow i want to be that happy and they are that happy and it's just like ah it's such a witness i mean it's such a witness you can't you can't argue with that. You know what I mean? There's no like, let me philosophically rationalize. Like, why are these people so happy? It's like it just hits you like a like a sack of doorknobs, as my dad is want to say. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where he got that term, but hits you like a sack of doorknobs. You're just like, what? You mean these people have no possessions, are living in community, and are some of the happiest people you'll ever meet? Yeah, crazy. Or these people have ten kids or eight kids, or whatever, and are totally in love with each other and are raising their family in a Catholic way. And maybe they don't have a ton of money or whatever, but you're telling me they're happy with their life. That's impossible. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. That's how we convert the world. I think <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Right? It's, it's all about witness. Yeah. And there was this thing uh, like, why were the missionary, the early Christian missionaries so effective? Uh, and I think I was talking to Dr. Jones about this, but he said like, yeah, they'd show up and the king would be like, well, what are you guys here for? 
you trying to take our money? And it's like, no, we, we, we're not here for money. We're totally broke. It's like, okay, what are you here for? Take our women? It's like, no, we, uh, we're actually celibate. <laughs> it's like, uh, well, do you want to put us under your servitude? And it's like, no, we're actually obedient to the bishop and the pope. It's like, what the hell are you here for? <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, no, just to convert you to Christ. It's like, okay. Like, that's the reason they were so effective. It's like, they gave up everything. We're in a, a physical sign, like a physical reality, like we were talking about earlier, like a sacramental sign. That like, no, we're just here for Christ. You know, the sisters are that, you know, families that have big families, I think are that as well. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, it's it's hard to understand. It's one of those things that most people, even Catholics, I think most people will just say like, once you experience it, like you just used to know. I mean, wasn't that like, I feel like Mother Teresa, I think I just heard this somewhere. This could be wrong. But someone was telling me that like a lot of secular missionaries would come and work with her um, just because, you know, she was her missionary outreach was like very you know, extensive. And so sometimes secular missionaries would come and help her out and they would be converted by her, not just be, and she didn't preach to them, but it was just her presence. It's like, like there's just like almost like emanating off of her. It's like, Mm. like holiness. (laughs) (laughs) You can't replace that. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. No, it's wow. That's so beautiful. And you become like a, and she would spend what, like an hour a day in Eucharistic adoration. It's like, yeah. And I think you can see that with some married couples too. I mean, like, I feel like most of us here at Franciscan can think of a few married couples that when you see them with their family, you just were like, wow, like that's a very holy couple. Like they just have so much love for each other, so much for their kids. Like I want to love like that. And you think like, whoa, it's actually possible. Yeah. Because <laughs> today society tells you that's not possible anymore. Hmm. And then you know, you can ra- you can talk about it on the intellectual level all you want, but then when you encounter it face to face, you're like, no, like love exists <laughs> and it is possible even in this radical form. Seeing like, yeah, seeing that it actually exists in a radical form, it's it's mind boggling. You're like, what? I think it's the it's those moments of realizing that grace can actually work. That like, if you work with God and you cooperate with Christ and His grace. It can actually look like that. Like you can recreate like your own little holy family. You know, it's with Joseph and Mary and Jesus. But Um, and once again, it all comes back to submissiveness, right? Being submissive to the will of God, you know, and no matter what your state of life is, if it's, if you're, if in your mind, you're seeing it as this constant power battle, you're never going to win. You're never going to come out on top, but the way to grow and to be happy and to grow these great relationships, whatever your state of life is. Um, it's missing it's the will of God and like working with his grace. And yeah, that's, what's going to make you the best person you can be at the end of the day. It's not going to be your own victory in this power struggle. <laughs> yeah. I mean, offering your whole life to another person, it seems really, you know, that doesn't seem like good on the power game stuff. It's like, yeah, how do you have a marriage that starts out with that as your principle? I mean, you're just doomed for failure. Um, yeah, maybe we can. That's how we retake the culture. I think it was one of the things Dr. Hahn said in his. Um, I don't know if you've seen his book, The First Society. No. But uh, it's all about marriage and um, the family and how to retake the culture. And he said, um, if Catholics lived out the sacrament of marriage and the full graces of that for one generation, we would have a truly Catholic society, mm-hmm. the United States of America. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, Dr. Hahn, <laughs> hold up there. Yeah. I mean, I believe it. I think this is something that I've always commented on how 
during mass, during the prayers of the faithful, you often hear, you know, for an increase in uh, religious vocations. And I always say that like, you need to add to this. This needs to be a prayer of the faithful too, for an increase in holy marriages. Because mm. one of the things that I've been like thinking about is where do you want, where do you expect all these religious vocations to come from? You know, if, if, if all these Catholic couples, so-called Catholic couples are not going to mass every Sunday are contracepting and are just, you know, not examples of the faith, how in the world would their kids grow up to become priests and sisters, you know? Mm. And it's, it's like you said, like holy couples can revolutionize the world and we should always be praying for an increase in holy marriages and married couples should always be, you know, praying for, you know, God's grace to come into their own marriage and to help them grow in holiness as well. Cause yeah, it just reaches all aspects of the church and of society in general. Orienting our whole lives to Christ. There's so much sacrifice involved in it, but so much beauty as well. Man, we're right up against eight o'clock. Wow, that blew by. Goodness. Uh, what didn't we talk about? Jeez. Went through, um, yeah, feminism, our whole culture, women, uh, women in priesthood, women in the church, holy marriages. Yeah, crazy. Jeez. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah. Seriously. Um, Wow. We talked about a lot. I have a lot to think about still. Um, but yeah, any final thoughts? Live a live a, hap, a happy Catholic life, you know, like live grace. I mean, honestly, I think that that's just what everything boils down to in this topic and with everything. It's if you live a life of love rooted in God, then you will be happy. And it, it's true for your marriage. It's true if you pursue religious vocation. It's true in every aspect of your life. Just love. <laughs> it seems so simple, but it's, you really do need the grace of God in order to do it well, but just, just love. <laughs> just love. That's going to wrap it up for us. Kellen and Alex show. Adida, thanks so much for coming yeah, on the podcast. This is super fun. <laughs> uh, we're going to be back on Friday with Dr. Andrew Jones uh, coming on the podcast. Josh Feibelman is going to be co-hosting that. So be looking forward to that. And uh, Adida, thanks again for being on the podcast and uh, peace out everybody. If there's a Christian religion, and it's Catholicism or nothing. What politics actually is, art of people living together, orienting one another towards virtue. And the person was like, dude, flirting is the abortion of love. This is the most worthy, most exciting, most adventurous. Drop and, a uh, nuke on the Franciscan bubble. The Kellen and Alex Show.